take your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, we want to go back to this passage. We were in the first part of this passage last week, and we met a man named Isaiah who was a priest. Isaiah came out of a priestly line, as you remember, and he was also a prophet. And he came to worship one day in the glorious temple of Solomon. You remember that temple that Solomon established for the worship of the Lord? This was the house that David wanted to build and that God said to him, David, you're the man of my own heart. You're the man of my own choosing. I've had a different role for you in my economy. I have had a different place for you in my purposes. You are a man of war. I have strengthened your hand to do battle. And under David, the kingdom was established, the nation was unified, and the borders were expanded, and they even became more so under Solomon. And one day David decided as he brought the ark up to the new capital of the city, the city of Jerusalem, uh, rather capital of the nation, the city of Jerusalem, and established there the tabernacle and brought the tabernacle there and decided to bring up the ark. God said to him, uh, this is not for you. This desire to build a house for me is not for you. Instead, I am going to build for you a house. And so God established a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with this incredible man, David, a covenant that is still in effect today. And as a sign of that covenant, God gave uh, to David after a great failure on David's part that you know about in Psalm 51 and the cleansing of that in Psalm 32, God gave to David a son named Solomon. The word Solomon is a derivative of the word shalom, which means peace. And Solomon was a man of peace, and under his kingdom, under his ruling, the kingdom expanded its borders to the largest amount of kingdom space it ever enjoyed as a nation. And it was Solomon that built the house for God that David desired to build. And it was a glorious, glorious house. You can read about the building of that house in the book of Chronicles, and you can read about the dedication of that house. And when that house was dedicated, the Lord came and dwelt there and filled the entire house with smoke, very similar to what happened on the mountain that Moses was at when he received the vision of the Lord's glory. And so this is the house that Israel enjoyed and came to three times a year, and every day in the city of Jerusalem, twice a day, prayers were offered by the priests in the holy place. They would go into that holy place, and there would be a golden altar of incense, and they would uh, make uh, uh, lay incense on that. They would burn incense on that altar, and it represented the prayers of the people going up to the God of heaven, whose throne was just behind in that most holy room, and you couldn't see into that room if you were a priest because there was a great veil there. And on that veil were cherubim that guarded the way. And if you could get in there, like the high priest did once a year, you would see some majestic cherubim guarding the ark, and on top of the ark would be what was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was described as the footstool of God's throne. And so God was behind that veil. And so Isaiah was one of the priests that came in twice a day, at his allotted day, just like John the Baptist's father did in the New Testament. The nation, the righteous people of the nation would have been gathered outside the temple doors waiting for the priests to come out. And uh, these prayers would be offered in the morning and they would be offered in the evening. And we don't know which of these two times Isaiah was going into that holy place to offer the incense. But on the day that he went in, he had a majestic vision. And we looked at that vision as he offered the sacrifices. We saw the veil just sort of disappear before his eyes. And he got to see right into that holy of holies. And his eyes went far beyond that little room, that little holy chamber to the very throne room of heaven. And he saw there a throne high and lifted up. And so we saw the power of worship. 
We are in the middle of our series on worship. You'll remember we started with Psalm 95, and uh, we looked at the call to worship. And then we went to uh, Romans chapter 5, and we looked at the joy of worship, that triumphant joy that comes as we think about the hope of the glory of God that has been won for us by Jesus, lost by sin, won back for Jesus, and is being restored in our own hearts. And so last week we looked at the power of worship to transform. And that's really where we're at this morning. We want to look at the power of worship to transform our lives. And if we think about what we saw last week, we noted three things. We, we saw the context for worship. Isaiah came into that place and we noted that he came in in a time of national uncertainty. Didn't really know what was going on in the nation around him or what would happen, but the verse that we read this morning for our own prayer time about our own nation was what Isaiah had been saying to the people. This is about how God feels about your worship. When you come into this place, into this glorious temple, and you spread out your hands and you bring your offerings and you do the washings and you do the rituals, you are very good at that kind of worship. And think about how that might apply to us. We come week after week, don't we? And we spread out our hands to the Lord. And we offer the praises through our singing. And we bring our tithes and our gifts to the Lord. And we make our prayers to the Lord. And Isaiah looked at the nation and he said, God is not hearing any of this. God's not pleased with any of this. There was also not just national uncertainty, we, we looked at the fact that there was spiritual formality that was going on. The entire nation had no knowledge, or at least refused to acknowledge what Isaiah was saying to them. Throughout the entire book, Isaiah is going to consistently come to these people and he's going to say to them, rend your heart and not your garments. He's going to join voices with men like Isaiah and later Ezekiel. He's going to, his voice is going to be with that of Amos and Joel and Micah and these men who have been anointed by God and appointed by God to be his prophets, his gracious, bold spokesmen to the nation are going to consistently come to the nation and the nation is going to refuse to hear. Could that possibly be happening in our own lives here? Week after week, as you hear the Word of God, week after week, as we come to worship and we hear the Word of God sung, we sing the Word of God together. I don't know if you realize the importance of what happens. Worship doesn't start when I say, turn in your Bibles. We have been worshiping the entire time, and we have been singing the Word together. We have been praying the Word together, and now we're sitting under the Word together, myself included. And how many times do we come and we sing words and we pray words and we listen to words that reflect the Word of God and we leave unchanged? Isaiah came at a time of uncertainty and a time of spiritual ritual formality and he came with deep burdens and personal grief. You'll remember his cousin, the king, King Uzziah, had just died. In fact, in Isaiah 6.1, that's the temporal marker for this. In the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah's father and Uzziah's father were brothers. So Isaiah had a royal connection. And so there was grief going on in his heart. And many times, you and I come down burdened by those very same things. We come uncertain about the future, burdened about the lack of spiritual life, even in our own hearts, and perhaps burdened down by sorrow and grief. And we come to worship. And that day, Isaiah saw something that changed everything. That was the content of the worship that transformed. Isaiah saw a vision of a sovereign. And then he heard the voice of a seraph. Actually, seraphs. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. We saw the context, Isaiah's context. But then what did he see when he worshiped? We noted in these three verses the content of that worship. 
And he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then as he was watching the Lord and seeing this incredible vision, he began listening to singing. That's the idea between these majestic creatures that are singing back and forth to each other around the throne. And their song is all about the wonderful, matchless, glorious beauty of the holiness of God. There's nobody like God in the universe. There's nobody that, that is in His category. And there was incredible singing going on between these angelic creatures as they sing back and forth, holy, 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 holy is the Lord our God. And so we saw the context of worship and we saw the content of worship and then where we ended was the response to all of that. There was a cosmic response to the song of the seraph. As Isaiah stood there in this majestic house that Solomon built, the entire building began to shake with the sound of the singing of the seraphs. Can you imagine what would happen if we could sing with that kind of triumphant joy on a Sunday morning so that this building would shake? I mean, what would it take to shake a building like this? Have you thought about that? This is a gym. I mean, it didn't take much to shake down a couple of panels out there and introduce some modern art yesterday, right, out the front of our entrance. What would it take if we came in this building and got so overwhelmed by the beauty of the God we're singing about, we got so uh, unbelievably encouraged and even convicted by the, the sight of His glory that as we sang in joy and in triumph over what He has done for us, that our voices would be so filled with joy and triumph that this room would resound to the point that the people up here would go, something is shaking. What would it take? You know what it would take? It would take you. It would take you. It would take me. It would take every one of us actively engaging and actively celebrating what we're singing as we think about Christ being our vision, as we think about the fact that we, of all the people on this planet, we have seen His glory, as we think about the fact that He actually is alive, how many other religions, how many thousands of religions around the world have people that worship, and they are worshiping someone who is dead. And we, of all the people on the planet, have a Savior that is what? Alive. And because He lives, what? We live. This God that we've been singing about this morning, this God is alive and He has granted us life. In fact, He is our life. And what an incredible uh, opportunity for us. And so there was a cosmic response. And then there was a personal response when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, and he saw the beauty of his holiness, and he heard the incredible celebration in the cosmic temple where God dwells. This is what he said, woe is me, for I am undone. In chapter 5, there are six times where in the will of God and in the ministry that God had given to Isaiah, Isaiah looked at the nation and said to the nation, woe unto you. Six different times. You can go in Isaiah 5 and you can actually trace out those six times that in the will of God, Isaiah looks at the people around him and says, God is pronouncing a woe on you. But when he gets into the presence of God, all of that vanishes. And he says to himself, woe is me. The incredible power that worship has to transform begins there. When we see the beauty of God and we see the beauty of His holiness, what we end up understanding is that we are not worthy to be in His presence. Woe is me, he says. And then there was this incredible divine response to all of this. There's a cosmic response in heaven to the glory of God's holiness. There's a personal response to the beauty of that holiness. And now there is a divine response to Isaiah's confession. And God motions to one of the 
angels, and he says, now I want you to go to that altar, the great altar, probably not the altar of incense, because whatever's lifted up from the altar is actually going to make an atonement. And so it's probably talking about the great altar that Isaiah would have walked by as he walked into the holy place. And God says to the angel, I want you to go down there, and I want you to take a coal from off that altar, and I want you to touch the lips of Isaiah. And when that coal, that burning coal, that ember, touched the lips of the prophet, instead of bringing pain, it brought benefit. It brought healing. It brought cleansing. Isaiah was humbled by a sinful condition. He was cleansed by a compassionate God. And then God says, this coal has touched your lips. Your sin has been atoned for, your guilt has been cleansed, and now you're consecrated for service. And that's the power of worship to convict us and to cleanse us and to consecrate us. And every week that we come together and we worship this God and we see that beauty and that holiness of God, that should be the effect in our life. And that's where we left Isaiah last Sunday. So what happens when worship has that kind of power in our life? What happens after we see God and we're convicted and then we humble ourselves and we confess who we are and what we're like and God says, I knew and I've already made a plan for that and He cleanses us and He consecrates us for service. What happens next? And I want us to see the three things that follow in the chapter. I I want us to look at the impact that this kind of cleansing worship has. I want us to see the consequence of that impact on the life of the worshiper. And then I want us to end by looking at the means by which God brings all of this about. And so let's begin this morning by looking at the impact of the kind of worship that we saw in the first half of Isaiah 6. And and that impact starts in verse 8. Isaiah saw something in the first half of the chapter. In the second half of the chapter, he hears something. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And so, the kind of worship that we're talking about has a profound impact on the life of the worshiper to shape life and redirect purpose. And that's what we're going to see happening here. And it begins with a gracious invitation. God says, who will I send and who will go for us? Now, I want to point something out to you. I think it's important to note that God is not desperately wringing his hands on the throne, wondering if there's anybody anywhere available to do the little mission that he's got in mind. I need, I've got a need, I've got this mission I'm trying to do, and there are no servants anywhere, and what am I going to do? The seraphs are busy singing, the cosmic forces of heaven are up here, I don't have anybody down there, is there anybody who will go for me? That's not what's happening here. God is not desperate for servants, and in fact, it might surprise you that God doesn't even need servants. You say, well, how in the world did you get that? Well, well, listen, just listen to how Isaiah speaks about this. God is very different, Isaiah says, than the gods of the nations who constantly had to be served. They had to be carried about. They had to be served by those who worshipped them. The true God, who is speaking to Isaiah here, made the world and everything in it. Being the Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples. This is Paul, centuries later, saying to the people at Athens, the Lord made heaven and earth. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. This is not a God who needs to be served. This is a God who serves. Listen to Mark, unlike all the other gods who need to be carried about and who need to be cared for and served. This God came down and tabernacled among men, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom to many. That's exactly what Mark 10.45 is all about. 
And when Isaiah really understands this in Isaiah chapter 64, he says nobody has ever seen a God like this. Nobody has ever heard of a God like this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. So whatever's going on here, this is not God desperately needing somebody to go do a mission for Him. So if God doesn't need servants, and if God is the one who serves, then what in the world is going on here when He asks the question that He asks here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8? And I would submit to you this, God is actually extending to Isaiah a glorious invitation to be a part of one of the most majestic missions ever seen in the universe. This mission for Isaiah may start in the streets of Jerusalem. It may lead through the valley of judgment, but it isn't going to end there. It's going to end in a new Jerusalem. It is going to end in a new heaven and a new earth, and, and the earth is going to be filled with His glory. Notice what the seraphs were singing back in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Remember we looked at that text and we're like, how in the world is the earth full of His glory? Isaiah just came out of that earth and it's filled with empty ritual. It's filled with uncertainty. Uzziah has just died. King Jeroboam II, the wicked king of the northern kingdom, has just died. Assyria is back on the march. Egypt is sort of rising up. I mean, how in the world can you look around and say the earth is full of His glory? And you might ask that this morning. How in the world can you think that this earth is full of His glory? And we noted that the seraphs are singing that from a vantage point that you and I can't see. I mean, they are at the very, very top of the mountain peak and they can see the vista all the way to the horizon. And as they look to the horizon, they are looking at an earth that is filled with God's glory. And God is saying to Isaiah, now, how I bring that about, that mission, I would like you to have a part in that. Listen to how he describes it in Isaiah 66. God says, I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. I will send survivors to the nations. Tarsus and Pul and Lud to draw the bow to Tubal and Jabin to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they will bring all of your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Paul said this in Romans fifteen sixteen. I am bringing an offering of the Gentiles to the Lord. And they will come on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mount Jerusalem, says the Lord. And just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and clean vessels to the house of the Lord, they will as well. And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make remain before me, so will your offspring and your name remain. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And God says to Isaiah, that's the mission. And I want to invite you to have a part in that. Let me give you an illustration of how I envision this. I mean, think about... Let's just think for a minute about the World Cup. And I mean, you're on a team... And uh, that team has been playing all season, and you made the world championship. Your team is in the world championship. But you've been sitting on the bench for most of the season. You've been practicing, you've been doing all, and you've been, you've been part of this team, but you really haven't had a lot of play time. And here you are in the final moments of the game, and there is a shot that has been set up by the best player in the league 
And as he gets ready to take the shot, he calls a timeout, and he comes over to the bench, and he looks right into your eyes, and he says, how would you like to take the shot? I guarantee it's going to go in the net. And when you take the shot, and that ball goes in the net, and our team wins the World Cup, the entire watching world is going to erupt in glorious celebration, and you are going to be the one that kicked the ball into the net. Now, if you actually had that opportunity, what would you do? No, I don't don't think so. I don't really want to. No, no, no. You know what you'd be doing? You'd be like, yes! And you would run in and take your spot, and then you would kick that ball, and that ball would go in in the net, and the entire world would celebrate What who did? What you did. No, kind of what you did. What was set up for you to do. And that's what God is doing here. Isaiah, I have a mission. And the mission is glorious. It's going to start in the streets of this broken city that is filled with people who are doing things that I can't abide. And it's going to lead through the valley of judgment. But when I'm done, the earth is going to be filled with my glory. And you are going to have a part in this. No wonder Isaiah says, Lord, here am I. If you're looking for somebody to do that, I'm in. I want a part of that. There is this willing servant that shows up. He immediately volunteers and presents himself. All of his little plans, all of his little goals, all of his little agendas, all of the lesser glories that we talked about last week vanish away when he sees the glory of God and he's given the part to play to bring that glory about so that the entire earth is filled with that glory. And you know what? What happened to Isaiah has happened to you. You remember last week we said that Isaiah sort of stands in for the nation? He said it, didn't he? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the context, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What needs to happen to the nation? So that by the time we get to Isaiah 66, the nation is able to do the mission. What needs to happen to the nation? The very same thing that happened to Isaiah. What needs to happen, folks, for us to really be a part of this mission? What has to happen to us is what happened to Isaiah. There has to be a cleansing. There has to be a consecration. And there has to be a vision that is so big, it makes all of the lesser visions of our life that we give ourselves to, that demands so much from us. It takes all those lesser visions and puts them in our place. In other words, a different way of saying that is that when we get this, we begin to live for the right kingdom. You know, most of us came to worship this morning and we weren't prepared. (laughs) At least I wasn't, maybe you were, for Isaiah to talk this way to us. Or for this chapter to speak this way to us. Because we have kingdoms that matter to us. You have kingdoms and I have kingdoms that matter very, very much to us. And some of those kingdoms are good kingdoms. Some of those kingdoms are actually biblical kingdoms. I have the kingdom of my marriage and I care deeply about that kingdom. I have the kingdom of my family. I care deeply about that kingdom. You may have the kingdom of your job. You may have the kingdom of your academic preparation. You may have the kingdom of of your involvement in the community. And all of those kingdoms are not bad kingdoms. But there is a kingdom that outstrips them all. And the present expression of that kingdom is something that God made you a part of. And that present expression of that coming kingdom is the church that God made you part of. If you've been through PBC 101, you know there are five core values that drive everything that we do in this mission. And the first of those is the authority, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of Scripture. Everything we do is derived from that. Everything we teach, everything we 
articulate everything that we do as a church is shaped by our commitment to the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. And that's what we're sitting under here in Isaiah chapter 6. And when we go to the Scripture, it elevates somebody, and that somebody isn't us. When we go to the Scripture, there is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over everything, over everyone, over every part of our life. And the thing that Jesus Christ gave His life for is His church. It's what He promised to build. It's what He promised to establish. It is what He stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for. It's what He wants you to be a part of. It's what He wants you to give your life for. And what often happens is we settle for lesser glories. I don't have time for the big kingdom because i got to take care of this and this and this and all of these little kingdoms of my life. And by the way, can I just say to you that if you're not taking care of your marriage and you don't love your kids well and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, this big kingdom is going to suffer. But many, many times people say, I don't have time for this kingdom because I'm so busy with these kingdoms. And I would just say to you, if you let the authority of Scripture actually sit down on your soul when this kingdom is flourishing in your life, then all of these other kingdoms will flourish. And sometimes the best thing you can do for your husband is say to your husband, you know what? I know you love us. I know you care for us. But don't neglect the kingdom that God has made our family a part of. Or sometimes as a husband, you might need to say that to your wife. This is a hard saying, but this is exactly what God is doing here in the book of Isaiah. He is taking a servant and He is saying to him, there is a kingdom that is so much bigger than all of the lesser glories that people give themselves to, and I have made you a part of that kingdom, and I've given you a mission to do in that kingdom. And that's the commission that He gets in verses 9 and 10. Go and say to this people... And Isaiah's going to spend the rest of his life doing that. In fact, everything that he's going to say to the nation, he writes down in a book, 66 chapters long, and preserves it in our Bible under inspiration for us in a book that bears his name. So what is the message that Isaiah was called to deliver? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah, tell them that. Tell them Invite them to come and reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. That's Assyria. Later Babylon. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is very honest. With his willing servant, he says, Isaiah, when you go and announce this gracious message to the nation, it's actually going to harden their hearts. And they will not hear. Instead of convincing people to repent, God's message will harden them. And that's exactly what happens. Isaiah goes to the nation. He warns them of their sin. He rebukes their empty worship. He reminds them of their covenant obligations as God's people. He calls them to repent. He constantly puts God's gracious invitation of forgiveness and cleansing. He reminds them of the glorious future and the promises that God intends to keep, but they would not hear. And before we judge them, we need to look really hard at our own life. I mean, think about how much word you hear as a church every week. Week after week after week, you sit under preaching. Every equip hour, you hear teaching of God's Word. Throughout the week, there are times in our community groups when you come together and there is more word orientation. And apart from what you hear here, you in your car listening to the Word being sung to you as you listen to Christian radio or, or, or you read in your personal quiet time, your life is filled with opportunities for the Word. But are you receiving what you are hearing? Or are you like the people that Isaiah was preaching to? 
God was very honest. And so what would sustain a man like Isaiah? God said to him in verse 13, there will be a holy seed. There will be a holy seed. And that brings us then to the consequences of this kind of impact. When you have this kind of impact in your life, what happens? And if you notice what happens in Isaiah's life, there is a deep compassion that springs up. Look at verse 11. He says, how long, O Lord? I I know that you're telling me to go and to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and to blind their eyes. But Lord, how long is this judgment going to last? He's moved by deep compassion for the people that he is being sent to preach. And by the way, as you read the rest of the book, Isaiah has very hard things to say to this nation. I mean, unbearably hard things. I mean, when you start reading Isaiah and you start listening to what he talks about and, how, and what he has to say, it, it's stunning sometimes the language Isaiah uses. But behind all of that, you know there is a deep compassion and a deep desire in Isaiah's heart for the good of these people. Can I just say it to you this way? You know, God has used different people over the years of my life to come and to point out things that need to change. God has brought people into my life that have sat down and sometimes the conversations have been very frank and very hard. Have you ever had a friend like that in your life? Has God ever graced you in your life with a pastor or a friend or a mentor that from time to time has had the courage to sit down with you and say, look, here is something in your life that is hurting you, it's hurting the gospel, and and it's not pleasing to the Lord. I'm sure you've had those friends in those moments in your life, and I've had them. And here's what I've noticed about myself. It's never easy to hear that, is it? It's never easy to hear that. But the people who have had the most impact in conversations like that with me have been people who I know love me. And they've demonstrated that love over a long period of time. They don't just walk in a room sort of like they haven't been in my life forever and they go, now I love you, now i got a hard thing to say to you. That, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person who God brought into my life to do life with me. Everybody needs a mentor in their life. Everybody needs a peer, and everybody needs somebody they're mentoring. You need to be one of those three things to everybody. But there are times in my life where God has used somebody whose love for me is not questioned in my mind to say a hard thing. And that's what Isaiah is going to do to this nation. He is going to spend the next 60 years of his ministry saying hard things to people he loves. You want to make a difference in somebody's life? Love them. Let the truth that God needs to say to them through your mouth come out of an ocean of love. There's deep compassion. There's unshakable commitment in verses 11 through 13. God says to Isaiah, you are to stay at this until the thing you dread comes to pass. Until the cities are wasted and ruined, the houses are empty, the land is desolate, and my people have been carried away into captivity. He says, well, how in the world... Is that going to produce commitment because of an unbroken confidence that Isaiah has in something God said at the end? In other words, Isaiah, when I've destroyed my people and I've cut down David's house, I will leave a stump. And that stump will be a holy seed. And that's the last thing we want to see this morning. What is that stump? And what in the world is that holy seed? And the answer is stunning. It's the means by which everything else we've talked about takes place. And that's the final thing we want to see, the means by which all of this worship that transforms actually transforms. And we could say it this way, the Holy One of Israel will do something. 26 times in Isaiah... Isaiah looks at the person on the throne and he says, now that one is Israel's holy one. 
The Holy One of Israel is going to do something. What is He going to do? Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He, the Holy One of Israel, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him, the Holy One of Israel, was the chastisement that was that brought us peace. And by His, the Holy One of Israel, by His wounds, we are healed. So the Holy One of Israel is going to do something for the Holy Seed of Israel. What's He going to do for them? Listen to Isaiah 43. Fear not, God says, for I have redeemed you. What happened in Isaiah 53 has that effect. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And the Holy One of Israel has done that for you. He's done it for me. When you pass through the waters, what? I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not, what? Overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. You remember the four Hebrew, or the three Hebrew men? that were cast into the furnace. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And if you are a believer this morning, what he wrote to Israel so many years ago is yours. The Holy One of Israel will do something for the Holy Seed of Israel through the root of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump. This is Isaiah 11. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who's that? That's the person in Isaiah 9.6 whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Those titles are repeated about this root that's coming out of that stump of Jesse. This root of Jesse in Isaiah 11 is going to do something for the holy seed of Israel at the behest of the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is going to ask the root of Jesse to do something for the holy seed because he is their redeemer. And when... The root of Jesse does whatever it is, it's going to draw the nations. Listen to the text. In that day, Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the nations. Of him will the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. The Holy One of Israel is going to do something for the Holy Seed of Israel through the root of Jesse that's going to include the nations. And when all of this happens, the earth will be filled with His glory. Listen to Isaiah 11.9. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like waters cover the sea. What in the world is happening here? The Holy One of Israel is doing something for the Holy Seed of Israel through the root of Jesse for the nations for His glory. And Isaiah is part of it. And by the way, so are you. So are you. Because the root of Jesse is someone you know. The root of Jesse is a man named Jesus. And so at the very end of the book, in Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah looks forward as a prophet and he sees what's going to happen a hundred years later. And he says, Lord, our beautiful house has been burned with fire. The land that we occupied that you gave to your servant Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you gave to your people, that land has been lost Our beautiful house, the temple, has been burned by fire. Isaiah sees this a hundred years later. He's not alive a hundred years from now, but he sees it as though he were there. And in Isaiah 64, he writes about it. 
And he says to the Lord, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And 800 years later, a man named John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. And the root of Jesse comes to be baptized. Listen to Mark's account of that baptism. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth, that's the branch. The word Nazareth comes from the word branch. That's the root of Jesse. In those days, the root of Jesse, Jesus from Nazareth the Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being rent the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. 800 years later, God did rend the heavens, and He did come down, and He did tabernacle. And you want to know who Isaiah was looking at? That day when he was in the temple, John chapter 12 tells us that when John was looking at the one on the throne, John, or Isaiah was looking at one on the throne, John says, now let me tell you who he was looking at. He was writing of him. And the him in John chapter 12 is Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? In Isaiah chapter 6, the person sitting on the throne who cleanses Isaiah, the person who's sitting on the throne that consecrates Isaiah, the person whose glory is so stunning that all of the seraphs in heaven are singing about it, the person sitting on the throne whose glory is going to fill the earth is Jesus. And you've seen Him. John says, we have seen Him. We beheld His glory. You know what Jesus has been doing? Ever since He tore the heavens and He came down, and then on the day He died, He tore that veil so you could go right into that throne room that Isaiah was looking at and receive grace from that throne. You know what that Jesus has been doing? You know what that King has been doing? He has been filling the earth with His glory. Because He's put glory in you. Remember our text in Romans chapter 5? We rejoice in the confidence of the glory of God, you have been given that glory. And God has sent you everywhere in the world to be His salt and His light. Go ye into all the world. And you know what's been happening all around the globe for 2,000 years? There have been little pockets of glory. The glory of God that fills you. The glory of God that Isaiah saw in chapter 66. That glory is in you. And it is filling the earth. And that's why Matthew said, let your light so shine among men so that they may see your what? Your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Folks, this is way more than an ancient vision in Isaiah chapter 6. This is what we do every Sunday when we come together. Can you imagine what would happen when you bring your burdens and your griefs And then all of your sorrows and all of your concerns and all of the frustrations you have because you spent your week listening to some talk show host tell you all the things that are going wrong in this country and all of the stuff that's going on. And you come in here with all of that and all of a sudden it all just goes away and you see the Lord. And God reminds you, I went to that altar. I sacrificed myself so that I could restore to you the glory that you once had that was lost by sin. And I have put that glory back in you. And I want you to come and celebrate every week the beauty of holiness that is now yours. And I want you to leave this place transformed week after week after week. And I want you to go out and I want you to display that glory through your life so that other people would say, how come there's light in you and darkness in me? And how do I get thirsty for what you have? But instead we come in and we just sit and we do the thing and we sing the songs and we we say the prayers and we listen to the sermon and then we leave and we get in our car and we turn that radio show right back on and we go right back into our frustration, right back into our national irritation. Right back into everything that is wrong about us. 
instead of saying, God, you've given me a mission. And I'm so grateful I worship today. May God transform us the way he transformed Isaiah. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? Lord, we're so grateful that the little missions and the little kingdoms that we're so much a part of that sometimes so irritate us and so frustrate us and so cause grief and despair in our hearts are little kingdoms. Important to us and in your grace, you answer our prayers about those little kingdoms. But there's a bigger kingdom and it's a glorious kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will never be stopped. The gates of hell will not triumph. They will not stand when that kingdom comes against them. When the gospel comes into the life of a person who has been overrun by sin, sin will not triumph. When Satan comes to sift your glory bearers, like he tried Peter, your prayers, your intercession will bind him. You have made us a part of something bigger than we could ever imagine. You've set up the shot so that when we, in our feeble strength, come to the field, you give us the gifts we need. You give us the strength that we need to use the gifts. And you direct the service in such a way that it accomplishes always what you intend for it to accomplish. And one day we're going to stand on a new earth in a new Jerusalem, and we're going to see these nations that so hate you today, they're going to come with joy and tribute and gifts and blessings. And you're going to look at some of those nations and you're going to say, I want you and you and you to be my priests. You're going to take people that were broken and ruined and marred in their physical being and prohibited from being any part of temple service and you're going to say to them, you're, you're no longer disqualified. Come and be a part. And your glory will fill the earth. And there is one little place where that glory should be filling already, and it's your church. And we're a tiny expression of that. And that church is all over this world, all over this planet. And we pray that somehow you would help each of us in our little place to so see what you've done here that our lives would be resplendent with this glory and that we would live for the kingdom that is coming instead of our own. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.